everybody, this is John. Uh, welcome back to the local youth worker. I know we've had uh, some radio silence for the last couple of weeks due to travel and uh, some illness, uh, but it's good to be back and glad to be able to offer this uh, conversation that I had with Dr. David Murray, a very encouraging conversation centered on his book, Reset. He gives a lot of helpful counsel, and he also shares his testimony with us at the beginning. Uh, so look forward to getting to that, and we'll have some newer content in the next couple of weeks as well. Hope you enjoy today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast brought to you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. David Murray. Dr. Murray, welcome. John, great to hear from you. Looking forward to a conversation. Yes, I am as well. Uh, Dr. Murray is Professor of Old Testament and Practical Theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan. He has pastored three churches over the past 22 years, two in Scotland and one in the United States. He publishes a blog at headhearthand.org and also runs christianmanacademy.com. He has published numerous books. Some of those are The Happy Christian, 10 Ways to Be a Joyful Believer in a Gloomy World, Jesus on Every Page, 10 Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament, and the book that will be the focus of this interview, Reset, Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture. But above all of this, uh, we know you're a husband and father. Uh, so would you tell us just a little bit about your family before we jump into our questions for today? Sure, John. Yep, yeah, I'm married to Shona. have been for ooh, 29 years, I think, now. Uh, we met when we lived in Scotland now we live in the USA. We came here in 2007. Uh, the Lord has blessed us with five children. Uh, four of them were born in Scotland, one over here in the USA, and one is married. The 23-year-old boy, boy, a young man is married um, just actually a month or two ago. Wow. Uh, he's um, in the Marine Reserves and also runs a painting business. Second son is uh, 21, and he works in heating and cooling, and then two girls who are si 17 and 15, they're at Christian school, and then we had a late arrival, a little five-year-old boy, Scott, and he is just the joy of our lives. Hmm. Well, yeah, and I know that's, that's enough on your plate right there, five, five <laughs> children. As, as a father of five myself, I know that can, that can keep you very busy. Um, yeah, so. yeah th thankfully they're a bit older now, so not quite so much physical work, but of course the older they get, the more mental and emotional and spiritual strain it puts on you as you think about their their spiritual welfare and their, their mor moral lives. And so yeah, the burden transfers, but it's still there. Mm, yeah, so someone told me, I think when you have little children, you have little problems. And then when you have big children, you have bigger problems. And typically that, that's the more the mental, the emotional that you're, you're talking about. So I'm just starting to get one that's close to the teen years. So I know I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm kind of preparing for those uh, <laughs> emotional <laughs> issues that we're probably going to be dealing with a little bit more. Yep. Um, but look, thanks so much for, for taking the time to come on the podcast uh, today. Um, as I said earlier, much of our discussion will center on your book, Reset. Um, but the third season of this podcast, we've been focusing on people's stories and, and hearing uh, their various aspects of their stories. So I thought we would begin there with you. Uh, why don't you tell us just where you grew up and how you came to know the Lord, as well as when did you start to consider full-time ministry? Mm, sure. Yep. I, I, so I grew up in Glasgow, attended public school there. There weren't really anything like Christian schools in Scotland at that time. There still aren't many. Any that are there are, are very small. So it, it was a pretty grim education I had. It was very secular, humanistic, anti-Christian, um, immoral, surrounded by... Um, Lots and lots of temptations, especially in my teen years, and kind of living a double life, really. On Sunday, I was still going to church with my parents and the rest of my siblings, and then Monday to Saturday, uh, living a, a very godless life. 
And this was complicated a little bit by the fact that we actually transferred churches in my early teens. We went from a, a Baptist church to a very conservative Scottish Presbyterian church, which at the time, as a teenager, I did not appreciate at all. <laughs> I do appreciate it now, I hasten to add, but um, it was quite a, a striking contrast um, it, everything just seemed a lot longer and more boring, and it was a bad, bad recipe for me as a rebellious teenager, and um, it set me up really for uh, departing from from God in my mid to late teens, pursuing very worldly uh, passions and lifestyle, living for the weekend, living for money. Uh, didn't do well at school at all. I was just taken up with soccer, um, really wanted to play professionally, uh, taken up with wanting to make lots of money and uh, started a couple of my own businesses, even a couple of while I was in school and left school a year early, didn't finish and just wanted to make lots and lots of money. I started working in an insurance company that, that was doing very well at the time. It was actually the, the Thatcher and Reagan years, which were very prosperous for both the UK and the USA. Quite easy to make a lot of money, especially in finance. And I had a couple of good bosses who gave me lots of opportunities, uh, great training, and uh, really I had everything I, I wanted. You know, it was like a crash course in worldliness. Um, had my own apartment. Um, by the time I was about 19, had a company car and lots of socializing around the, the, the business world, um, worked very hard, sometimes 20-hour days, and yeah, just great opportunities to, to you know, excel and, and make progress, and uh, it, was, it was a bad, again, a bad combination for a very worldly young guy, and uh, it, I didn't see it at the time, but over a, over a maybe about a I don't know, a six-month period in my, when I was about 21, 22, um, God began to just sour everything on me. I didn't see it as God at the time, but uh, sort of gradually begin to really have a, um, a, a disinterest in the things I used to be interested in. So, for example, I'd find, I'd find myself out on a Friday night and, and I'd be sitting in the steps of a club or a pub uh, crying, like at one or two in the morning. And then just walking back to my own apartment and just lying there in bed saying, oh, this is this is awful. What a life. This is terrible. There's, there's no happiness in this at all. And it was obviously the Holy Spirit convicting me, although I didn't realize it at the time. And even I had a couple of failures in my business and it didn't put me up or down. It would have been the end of the world for me up until that point. And I was just kind of, oh, well, you know, so what? And then one of my, I was at a, a launch of a, a big investment product that our company was launching. It was at Glen Eagles, which is a really beautiful five-star hotel in Scotland. And we had lots of um, wealthy people there. I brought a number of my clients. And uh, at the same time, there were uh, the Scottish soccer team was uh, staying there in preparation for a, an international game. I suppose it's like the Dallas Cowboys of America or something <laughs> like that. But, you know, you're kind of rubbing shoulders with these people. And, and we also had celebrity we'd hired to come and do the presentation. And it's just like, hey, you know, I've arrived. This is what I, I long for and live for. I've really made it here. And went into work the next day and everything was really downcast and sober and sad it was very unlike what would be the day after an event like that usually I was kind of like what's going on here as I made inquiries I found out that one of my previous bosses had been in a car accident on the way back from Glen Eagles he'd mm -hmm. been drinking he hit the back of a car and it catapulted a six-month-old baby out of the car and killed it hmm. And um, he, this this executive went to prison actually for manslaughter for for quite a quite a long time, and God really used that in my life to sort of say, "Hey, David, you know, here's where your life is going. This could have been you. Mm -hmm. um, this is this is this is your life. It's ugly. It's destructive. It's selfish, um, and it's going to end in death." 
and it was very convicting to me. And and around about the same time, one of my colleagues who had been very successful, far more than I was, he actually was sitting across from me, and he was diagnosed with bowel cancer. Mm-hmm. And he died basically in front of my eyes over a period of months. He tried various cures and uh, it was the first funeral of a person I'd really known well. And again, just very conscious, this 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 could be me next. And so just a number of factors came together that disillusioned me about life, about the world, about money and about myself really and just seeing how sinful I was, how ugly my life was. And I remember going home to talk to my father about it. And um, I don't usually talk to my dad about these things, tried to avoid these subjects, actually. But he said, David, when he heard my story, he said, David, you ever, you ever think maybe God is converting you, that God is saving you? And... Honestly, it was it was the last thing on my mind. I hadn't thought of that. Hmm. Yeah. But as soon as he said it, I thought, oh no, oh no, I think that is what's happening. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't figure out any other explanation for the things I loved and I hate. And I, 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 I was just kind of in a, in a state of, no, this cannot be. I, you know, I didn't want to be a Christian. I didn't want this miserable life, but I didn't think Christianity was the answer. So I'm like the opposite of a seeker. Um, but, you know, God is seeking me, obviously, and, and finding me and pushing through all my resistance and rebellion. My, my mother gave me a Bible study book, and I started reading my Bible for the first time in years, started praying for the first time in years, and over a period of a couple of months, all I can say is, sort of, Jesus popped out of the pages of Scripture mm. uh, in a very compelling and persuasive way. And I, I don't mean a vision or anything physical, but just he came alive in my own life. It was no longer like a dead, boring book, and this was just a person everyone else spoke about. This was now like a real living person in my life that I felt was speaking to me through the Scriptures, and I felt was was hearing me when I was praying. And so this this relationship developed that was as real as any other relationship in my life. And I, I, I can't sort of point to one day that I could say I wasn't a Christian and the next I was. It was a two, three-month period of kind of a climax of conviction and then this gradual revelation of Christ to me through the Word of God. And... Yeah, it just changed my life, and I, I realized my life had to change as well. Mm. And I, I didn't know what lay ahead of for me, but I, I, there was one thing I knew, and it was I had to leave my job. And the reason was because there was so much socializing and drinking and, and partying and, and just money temptation all around. I'm not, I mean, people can work in finance and be a Christian, but mm. I couldn't. Um, I didn't think. And so I went in to see my boss. It was my six-month review time, and I, instead of giving him a report, I gave him my resignation. And uh, I, I honestly, I couldn't even explain to him. I, I look back with regret. I wish I'd sort of explained everything that was happening to me and how the Lord had saved me. But actually, I wasn't that clear on it myself at that time, and, and it was sort of still in a state of transition. And um, I, I didn't take the opportunity, but he. I said to him, "Look, I'll, I'll work the rest of the month." And he said, "No." He said, "You finished today." He was really angry because obviously hmm. they invest in you, they give you opportunities, they have plans for the company, and he was really angry. And he said, "Give me your car keys." So I gave him my car keys. He said, "Your your cheap mortgage ends today." It was a, a really low interest rate, and um, your salary ends today, and hmm. just pack up and leave it was pretty brutal (laughs) um but you know i walked out of that office john and i can honestly say like i was the happiest man in glasgow (laughs) Um, i had no job i had no money i had no car i had no apartment or about to lose it and no future but whatever i knew that it was better than what was in the past 
and that the Lord would make clear what he wanted me to do in the coming weeks and months, and, and he did. So that's really how, I was going to say how I came to the Lord, but I should really say how the Lord came to me and, and, and saved me, uh, not for anything I was, in fact, quite the reverse, despite everything I was and did. Mm. That's amazing. That, that is. And, and to go back, just to clarify, when you, you were talking about how you were not seeking God at all, and, and when your father said you might be um, you know, being converted, and you were thinking, oh, no. <laughs> Did yeah. You said, you, said you, you picked up the Bible even then and just started to read it? Was that just out of curiosity? Even No, no. It was my mother gave me a Bible study booklet. I think it was in Joshua or something like that. It wasn't particularly helpful as such. Um, but it got me into the Bible again. So I, I think I remember going through a couple of chapters with the help of this little book mm. and not making much of it, but it got me opening the Bible again. And I, I mean, I'd been going to church. I, I knew sort of where the Gospels were. And so I, I, if I recall, I just started reading through the Gospels and it was that, it was through that that, that Jesus just came alive in my life. Mm. And so when did you consider full-time ministry? I mean, was this shortly after you lost your, or you, you quit and then, you know, the apartment was taken away, all of that. When did you begin thinking uh, ministry as a profession? Yeah, pretty soon after I felt, you know, I, this had been such an amazingly wonderful change in my life. I felt a liberty, a freedom, a happiness, a hope and a joy in salvation and in the Lord, uh, I just I just had this passion to to share it, and you know, I was pretty untaught. Uh, I'd not listened to sermons for years. I've been under sermons, but not listened to them for years. Um, but just wanted to tell whatever I knew. So I would you know do some door to door evangelism, go out with tracts. Um, a friend of mine was was working in a homeless men's hostel, a couple of them in Glasgow. So I would go along with him and try and talk to the men. And just this passion for evangelism was growing and desire for others to get what I got. And I started hearing about things like Youth with a Mission, um, Operation Mobilization, these sort of mission organizations that were very much for young people. And I thought, hey, that's that's what I want to do. And I, I think if I remember rightly, one of these gospel ships was docked in Glasgow around that time. It was the Logos or the Doulos. I can't remember which one. I thought, hey, wouldn't that be great? You know, jump on one of these and go around the world. And <laughs> there was a wee bit of, I think, you know, the, the glamour of that was a bit enticing. It wasn't a pure motive. So that was kind of what I was set on, and I went to talk to my dad about it again, and he said, eh, I'm not so sure, David, you know, number one, you actually don't know very much, <laughs> um, and number two, what then? You know, he'd known a lot of young people who'd gone away and done a year or two or three, and then sort of, okay, what comes after that? You, you know, marriage, providing for a family, and he said, look, you should really think about going to get some training, if you if you want in the long run to be really useful in the church, um, then go and get some theological training. So I talked to another few people, and um, I, I hadn't gone to college from from school, just gone straight to work. So to get an M, a Master of Divinity, I had to go to university first of all and mm. get a bachelor's, and then go to seminary, and and that's. That was the plan that began to emerge. I talked to various people, and uh, it wasn't very appealing, you know, because that's six, seven years, you know, before you're sort of out there and beginning to work. But that was the advice I was getting from all sources that you really want to be trained, taught, equipped if you want to do maximum good. And I'd missed the entry dates for all of these programs just, and at that time you really had to wait for about another year. So I, I was working with a, um, a a friend of mine who just started a business. I was just getting paid a pittance. It was very little, uh, just enough to travel really, but 
he was a very experienced Christian and he was teaching me a lot. He was giving me good books, good sermons to listen to. And that was, that was really helpful. And then an opportunity came to go to Eastern Europe. And so I went there for about six months and then another six month period, eh, sorry, five month period. And over there again, it was just very confirmatory. I was just doing things like helping believers in Hungary and from Romania, um, build youth camps and um, church buildings, doing a bit of teaching English as a foreign language, helping with the Romanian refugees. It was just before the Iron Curtain really came down there. Um, and just very much meeting real Christians, encountering real Christianity, people who'd suffered for the faith. And it's very inspiring and encouraging and really just confirmed me in that great desire to this. I want this to be my life. Mm. So after I came back from there, um, yeah, that would be the late 80s. I went to went to Glasgow University and then studied at seminary in, in Edinburgh. And after that, went into pastoral ministry in Scotland and was in two congregations there for about 12 years before coming to the USA in 2007. Wow, that's awesome. And and I'd like to talk a lot more about your story and just ask some more follow-up questions. But I know I did ask you to come on to talk about Reset uh, so we can transition to that. But that's such an amazing story, and I appreciate you sharing that. And I know you said you've been in the United States since 2007. Yeah. I assume you've been here a little while because you said soccer instead of football. That, that, was that painful to say soccer? Oh, <laughs> I'm still I'm still learning that one. Yeah, there's lots of things that still I choke on as I say it. <laughs> well, I appreciate you accommodating us and and helping us sure. with with soccer there. But it does look. I'm I'm with you. Football makes much more sense. Um, so uh, yeah, the terminology there. Um, yeah. Look. Before, before we started recording, I shared with you just the, the importance of this book, Reset, as we often are talking about this busyness epidemic that is plaguing our culture. I think your your book, Reset, has some valuable um, truths in it for, for us to reflect on as Christians. I mean, rooted in Scripture, so much of what you encourage um, from that book. And I know it was published in 2017, so it's been out a little while. I remember seeing, you know, several pastors kind of had it on a must-read list. And so I finally got around to reading it this past December and would recommend it to, to anyone, really, not solely pastors. I think, you know, many lay people would, would benefit from this this book, uh, Reset. But um, in, in the opening of the book, you share a sobering story about some health issues that you endured. Would you mind just sharing that story with us and then how that fueled your passion for writing this book? Yes, John. Yeah, I did write it for men in general. Um, uh, We were aware it was a very special problem for pastors, but I'd come to realize it's not just pastors who suffer from from stress, burnout, and and so on. So it's, it's for pastors in particular, but for men in general. And this book came out of very painful personal experience. I was uh, very uh, passionately involved in ministry in Scotland and then came over here and it just sort of multiplied the opportunities, multiplied to to, uh, preach and speak and write and uh, just get sort of more and more and more. And I realized... You know, the Lord had sent some warning signs into my life, like, David, you know, you've got to slow down. You've got to remember you're human. You've got to remember you're limited. But I was sort of like thinking, well, it's all good stuff and it's all for the Lord. And so we just keep going. And what can be wrong about serving the Lord with with all your heart? And, yeah, as I say, but... it must have been about 2010, 2011. I can't remember the exact dates now, but there have been a number of warning signs in my life. I had a couple of surgeries. I'd even had a car accident, rushing back from ministering somewhere in the winter here in Michigan. And But I kept thinking, if I could get, you know, just over the next hump, I'll, I'll slow down. And so I traveled to, to minister at this conference in Canada. It was about a six-hour drive. I was late in leaving, and so I, I actually drove without stopping the six hours. 
when I got out in Canada, I, I felt this pain in the back of my my calf on my leg, and I just thought, oh, you know, I've been doing Taekwondo with my kids. I've just sprained a muscle. It got worse and worse over the weekend. I traveled back on Monday morning, and by the time I got back to Grand Rapids, I, I could hardly walk on. I was limping around, and it was keeping me awake. Even I was, though I was taking painkillers, and I said to myself, well, I, I just need to get through Monday and then Tuesday morning, and then Tuesday night, I'm going to relax. And like, oh, my calendar was clear for about two weeks, and I was going to really, oh, just take a deep breath and sort of reconnect with family, reconnect with the Lord, because I felt my, my devotional life and even my ministry had got rather functional and robotic. Uh, rather than devotional and personal and so I was sitting there on the Tuesday night and lo and behold this pain went right across my chest and I thought whoa what was that it wasn't like you know people talk about heart attack it's like an elephant sitting in your chest it wasn't that bad but I knew it was something bad and and my pulse quickened I was sweating my wife's a doctor actually not practicing here in America but I called her and she said, you need to go straight to ER. And I said, no, honestly, I think I'm getting a bit better now. It's calming down and you're a typical man. <laughs> and she said, no, you've got to go. And I said, no, no, just come on. That's a thousand dollars as soon as we walk in that door. And she said, you're going. And I said something like, well, I'll go, but only for your sake. <laughs> really nice husband here. But anyway, we, we got to ER locally here and they did EKGs all looked fine. They said, eh, I'll just send you down to the big hospital just to make sure. So again, went very reluctantly. But um, I mentioned to the doctor there that I'd been on this journey and I'd got a pain in the back of my leg and his eyes narrowed and he looked concerned. He said, oh, okay. He said, well, I'm just going to do an extra test here. And I now know he was testing for a deep vein thrombosis, a DVT in my leg. Hmm. Sure enough, it came back positive, a blood clot in my leg. And then they did a CAT scan of my chest and they came back and they said, you have blood clots all over your lungs. And basically that clot in my leg had burst or, you know, spun off, circulated through my system and then splattered all over my lungs. Mm. And... uh, I didn't know that much about this condition. It sounded a bit bad, but my wife, when I looked at my wife's face, she was really alarmed, and um, she knew, as I have since found out, that it's, it can be fatal for about 15 to 20% of people. And um, But if you get to hospital, you've got a good chance of recovery. And So it was a very sobering time, and... Um, the doctor told me not to move because I had a life-threatening condition. They didn't want any more of that clot to break off. was in hospital for a few days and really just as soon as, I, as soon as I heard the news, the diagnosis, I knew it was the Lord. I knew he was speaking to me. I knew he was saying, David, you know, ministry, writing, preaching, speaking, all that's good, uh, but uh, I want you not your ministry. I want you. I want a personal relationship with you. And I want you to draw near to me. And I want you to walk with me, not in your own strength. Um, and so the, the the weeks after that was, it was a time of real um, personal repentance and reformation and putting things right. Really contemplating all the the things that had gone wrong and beginning to put into place with my wife's help a lot of changes and and that lasted for probably a year and slowly but surely and gradually the old habits started returning taking on too much um, sleeping too little exercising too little and think I mean I wasn't I wasn't doing it consciously, deliberately, defiantly. It's just like a default that had been in my life for too long was almost irresistible. And lo and behold, I'm back in hospital the second time, more blood clots. And it was like, okay, David, 
three strikes and you're out. And these are two strikes. So that was like, I thought I'd hit rock bottom before. This was true rock bottom. And so for about six months to a year after that, I really gave myself to studying God's word on humanity, anthropology, human limitations, the nature of um, spirituality also being embodied, the need to respect my body and the limitations God had set upon me. And, you know, looking at things like a diet, exercise, sleep, friendship, um, relationship, the means of grace, all, all the things that really go into a holistic view of being human before God. And as I shared that on my blog, I was just getting inundated with, with other people and pastors, other men who were going through similar things, had been through similar things, or were afraid they were going through similar things. And it just, the process I used in myself to help myself to better health, a more holistic view of living and serving God, began to help other men through it. And over time, just a system crystallized of certain steps that should be taken to honor God with our bodies as well as our souls. And that was that was really what eventually became Reset. One of the, the publisher at Crossway heard about what had happened to me and a couple of the men had been helping and he said, hey, this would be great to just get out there and, and help men who you cannot minister to one-to-one. Can you write something out and, and help men especially to sort of reset their lives and learn as I had learned and I'm still learning to live a grace-paced life in a burnout culture. That's the story of the, the book. Yeah, and I appreciate you so much sharing your story. I mean, I cannot imagine just the, you know, being hospitalized, as you said, first, but then going back a second time and just the, yeah. the Lord kind of chipping away at you. But I appreciate you you know, sharing what the Lord taught you through that. And then also just as you, you lay it out in the book, it's, you know, very practical as well. As you talked about, you know, diet, exercise, sleeping, uh, and, and really just weaving in our theology in the midst of all of mm. that is uh, so helpful. Um, but, but as you look back over your time in, in the hospital, but both times, and I know some of this is, is, is going to be a little foggy as you think back to those, those times, but, but what, what are some of the primary truths that you think the Lord was teaching you? I know you kind of shared some of that. And even after the second time, kind of slowly going through scripture mm. and, and meditating on, on God's word. But if you had to kind of boil it down to a few central truths, what, what would some of those truths be that the Lord taught you during those times? Yeah, I think the first thing is a greater view of grace. So, you know, I preach the doctrines of grace, I believe the doctrines of grace, and yet I wasn't, my, my view of grace was actually very limited. It was it was limited to doctrine and began to see that God had much more grace, many more gifts for us than, than merely doctrine, however wonderful that is. And so began to see the importance of being motivated by grace, you know, being fueled by a love for the Lord, a gratitude for his salvation, as opposed to serving the Lord out of any other motive. And I found the more gratitude and love for the Lord was motivating me, the much calmer and more peaceful I was and the healthier I was as well. And then just realizing the need to receive the graces of sleep very important the sleep science i began to read and the, the theology of sleep that i found in the bible uh, the the gift of exercise and uh, the gift of a good diet gift of friendship all these graces that i sort of thought i can do without began to realize they're, they're god's gifts the gift of sabbath a weekly sabbath that god had designed for our good and our welfare that i needed all these things I wasn't superhuman and uh, that God had designed all this for our overall health as well as our spiritual health. Um, and realizing too, I think the grace of 
giving control over to God, not trying to control every aspect of my life and ministry and and family, and just trusting him more with the the basics of life and uh, really just looking to him to be sovereign. The sovereignty I preached, I had to live out a lot more. Um, the the gift of the local church. So I'd, I'd been traveling a lot and felt distanced from the local church. So now really began to focus on being embedded in the church, uh, more fellowship with believers and just staying in the pew as well, just being ministered to, recognizing I needed that. Uh, the, the grace of friendship as well that, you know, not enough just to be sort of shaking hands with people, but I really needed fellowship and, and friendship and, and human closeness. Um, so all, all of these things, and, and as you said earlier there, John, it's not just the practicality of these things, but the undergirding theology of these things. I I had found, and I think other people have found this too, if you just do how-tos, they're not going to last very long. But if you do why-tos, then the how-tos will last a lot longer. In other words, if you can get a theology undergirding your practical uh, living, then there's much greater hope of it having a longer lasting effect in our lives. And so just constantly trying to seek God's wisdom in the scriptures for an undergirding theology. And then, okay, what does this look like in practical application? And, and some of that meant searching science, like sleep science, exercise science, friendship science even, um, to really convince and persuade as well as for the practical implementation of some of these things. I mean, God, for example, gives us a Sabbath, he gives us sleep, but what's the maximal way of using that, of, of using these gifts? A lot of science can help us there um, as studies have been done in these areas. Mm, yeah, so, so much good stuff. And, and as you began with grace, it's interesting, and you, you share this in your book of just how, we can believe in grace, we can teach grace, we can preach grace, but mm. then how we just subtly live in a way that's mm. opposite of that grace. And I yep. like how you lay out some of those subtle ways in which we can we can still be saying we, we believe in grace, but then well, let, let's look at how it's you know fleshed mm. out in, in your life. And so just yeah, so, some great categories that you give us there. And then as you mentioned sleep as well, um, there's something you, you mentioned on page – 54 of your book that I really appreciated. You said, few things are, are as theological as sleep. Show me your sleep pattern and I'll show you your, your theology because we all preach a sermon in and by our sleep. Mm. And so just showing how, you know, we can, we can believe all these theological truths and, you know, so much probably going back to, to Paul telling Timothy mm. to watch his life and doctrine mm. closely, that the two are, are related. Yep. Um, that, that the way we live is showing the doctrine we, we believe. And again, just as you weave a the theology through all these practical categories is just so helpful uh, in your book. And as you mentioned, um, this book, you, you primarily wrote Reset for, for Men, uh, but we know that you've got an accompanying book uh, that you co-wrote with your wife, Shona, entitled Refresh. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later, but, but could you share some of your wife's perspective on your time in, in the hospital, you know, post-hospital as you, you finally uh, got back after, you know, heeding her advice and counsel to, to go to the hospital, but when, when you've both sat down and kind of reflected on that time, um, what are some things that she shared in the midst of, you know, this trial? Because yes, you were going through it, but obviously she was going through it as well. Mm -hmm. so, so what are yeah. some of those things that she shared from her perspective? Yeah, I think the, she had been saying to me in the months leading up to the first time, David, you know, come on, this is not going to end well. You've got to slow down. You've got to sleep more. You need to come and walk with me, exercise with me, whatever. And I said, I know, I know, I will, I will. So, I mean, she didn't say, I told you so. <laughs> she, did, she didn't need to. Um, she, was, she was too gracious to say that and just, I think, too relieved that I was still there. Um, but, yeah, she obviously with her being 
a doctor, she is in, was incredibly helpful to me on the physical side of things and helping me just think these things through. But but spiritually as well, you know, that was her, that was actually her big priority. David, what's the Lord saying to you here? What's the Lord saying to you here? And we had many long walks in these months and many long talks in these long walks about just working the, this out. And I think that's where a, a wife is just so helpful that, you know, you can just be really honest, let your guard down, um, be vulnerable and dependent as well and, and lean on one another. Uh, so it was actually it was a time of, of real deepening of our marriage and our, our friendship and fellowship together. And and that's that's continued really to this day. I, you know, obviously I still go through busy periods, busy days. But we're you know, she's very good at just David. OK, this is fine for one or two days. But, you know, come on, let's. Let's remember the lessons. And so we, we do a lot more planning together. Um, just sort of do a lot more accountability with her. And just, yeah, very thankful for that godly voice in my life that um, I really need. And that's not afraid to um, give me one on the chin when I need it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good to have that accountability, um, for sure. And as you said, just uh, such a blessing to to have a spouse, to have someone that you can be that open with and that honest with and uh, can help you walk through those um, mm. seasons of life, uh, walk through that affliction and to, you know, hold you accountable for the days uh, ahead. Um, yep. You know, so, so much of what you do in the book Reset is really just, I mean, if you kind of had to to sum it up in a few words, it's just slow down <laughs> yep. to, to, yeah. to realize that we are humans and that because we are you know these embodied souls that we have physical limitations and and i was thinking as i was reading through martin lloyd jones book spiritual depression you know he talks about the the different temperaments of god's people you know simply put some people are more prone to being downcast or even physically weaker than others and so just, just thinking how does that um factor into the counsel that you would give uh, to those maybe encouraging those to slow down or, you know, what mm. advice would you give to those pastors who think, well, I know it's important to rest and, you know, pace ourselves, but I have a stronger temperament or a stronger yep. endurance than just kind of the, the average pastor out there. Uh, what's some counsel and thoughts and how does all that factor in? Uh, it's a very good question because <laughs> I think most men at least, I think they're the exception to the rule. Everyone <laughs> is the exception to the rule. That's my experience. I thought I was, and most of the men I've dealt with, they, that's what they have thought as well, and discovered to their cost that there are actually very few exceptions, if any, hmm. because it, it may not be, like in my case, it was physically that I broke down. But what I've seen is, yeah, people have different temperaments. People have different constitutions, and their breakdown is manifested in different ways. Mm. So you might have somebody who's physically coping fine with 60, 70-hour weeks, you know, every week of the year. I'm not saying we don't need to do that now and again, but as a, as a lifestyle, you have somebody who's doing that. But emotionally, they're, they're disastrous. You know, they're either lashing out at everybody or they're just, you know, operating in, in a kind of grinding, sad way. Or what I've seen as well in men is morally they break down. So, you know, they, their will is weakened. They start indulging in pornography and then are acting out and then relationships start. Um, or, you know, just financially, people can go crazy and lose all discipline. So, you know, it, it gets us one way or another. And it's another person I'm thinking of and you know, just working incredible hours, uh, seemingly emotionally buoyant, but making crazy decisions, a very clever person. And and so it's sort of none of us actually can escape. It, it might, we might escape in one area of life, but it will tell in another area of life. 
Yeah. And I think you can you can look back. I mean, I work at Puritan reforms, same. So we're always talking about the Puritans and reformers, and everyone said, "Oh well, you know, they worked, you know, hundred hours a week and eight days a week, and you know, whatever, <laughs> and they never slept." And uh, but actually, when you look at it, most of them died young. Hmm. Um, many of them had terrible years of ill health. And, you know, you take somebody like Spurgeon, he spent the last third of his life, much of it in the south of France, recovering from gout and depression. So, yeah, again, you might be, an, you think you're the exception and you might be able to sustain this for some weeks and even for some years, but eventually it takes a toll. And that's where faith comes in, you know, to, to believe what God says about us being limited, about us needing sleep, about us needing Sabbath, needing friendship, needing exercise, and so on, even when it doesn't feel like or look like we do, it's to believe that we do because God says we do. Otherwise, we will pay for it at some stage of our lives in some way in our lives. So I don't buy the the exception at all. I've never seen it. Um, I, I've seen people who thought they were and eventually learned to their cost that they're not. Mm-hmm. That's some good counsel for sure. And, and, you know, as we, so often as we in pastoral ministry are, you know, the hands and feet of, of Christ, so often our congregants try to make us into Christ and look to us as the the Savior. And so they will want us to be on call 24-7 and to be, uh, you know, omnipresent, to to be um, everywhere in every place. And so it's it's a temptation, you know, for us to to be that or to have the Savior complex as so, so many label it as. And so, again, just as you're saying to kind of keep these boundaries in place, being aware of our humanity and our inability um, to ultimately be Jesus to others that uh, we, we cannot. Yeah. And, and even as we think of our Savior, you know, in the incarnation, I mean, he had physical limitations when he was on yep. uh, the earth. And so, yeah, just some some good counsel there. Um, well, Dr. Murray, as I read the subtitle of your book earlier, uh, the subtitle being Living a Grace-Paced Life in a Burnout Culture, thinking about our current culture specifically ministers and ministries, what, what are some of those concerns with the pastoral pace that you see of many ministers today and ministries that others are involved in? Yeah, I think what the biggest thing I've seen that is uh, causing burnout in ministers is over-accessibility, uh, that you know, there's so many channels into a pastor's life now. For example, when I started out in ministry in 1995, we had no internet, no email. We had a, a landline, there were not even cell phones. And that was it. The only channel into my life was either through the mailbox or through the telephone. And because you know, most people's telephones were in their houses. They didn't have them in their pockets and cars. You know, the number of phone calls you got in a day were very limited. There was no texting. And so, you know, I very easily go days without any communication. Uh, now, now I have like 60 emails a day minimum. I have, you know, 10 text dialogues a day, not just 10 texts, but, you know, 10 twos and throws. Um, I have phone calls coming left, right, and center because I've got my phone with me all the time and other people have got their phone with them all the time and can call whenever they like. Um, it's People, instead of like talking to the people in their own families, in their own context with questions about spiritual things, it's so much easier just to write an email and, and that lands on the pastor. So things that used to be answered by your mom, your dad, your brother, your friend, your colleagues, fellow church members, now because the pastor is just a click away, um, he's getting all these questions, inquiries, challenges. And then, of course, there's all the critique and comment that's so easy to send now, at least in the past. You know, it was there were barriers, there were delays in, in 
the ability to communicate critique to pastors nowadays again it's you know texts and emails and phone calls and pastors are absolutely submerged in communication and it's going to the only way out of this is really ruthless self-discipline by the pastor in terms of cutting himself off for periods of time every day if he's ever going to get any decent deep work done but also retraining, re-educating of people uh, that what about what is appropriate, what are protocols, what are the ways to go about things when you have a question or critique, and also administrative barriers, so that maybe all pastors' emails go through a secretary or something like that. But um, without a pastor becoming utterly inaccessible, that's not what we're arguing for here. Uh, he has to make himself more inaccessible. If he's going to survive any more than like three years in a, in, a, in a congregation, and if he's going to do any kind of deep, um, original, creative work, um, otherwise um, it's just going to be very shallow, mundane, uh, skimming across the surface of Scripture or you know, cutting and pasting other people's thoughts together. So I would say that's like that is, and and then you add on the whole social media blogging world, the that we can't even stand in line, we can't sit in our car, we can't even go to the bathroom without stimulating our minds with buzzes and beeps and blogs and um, you know tweets and posts and Instagrams. <laughs> our brains never get a moment mm. to actually calm down and be quiet and. All, all the moments that were in our lives in the past that were just calm down, quiet down moments, they've gone. And oftentimes these moments in the past were filled with prayer. Just, you know, turning to the Lord, just quick shoot up prayers to heaven. Now it's just all down on this earth, interacting with all sorts of pointless nonsense. Now that's These are the areas that I think are very much at the core of a lot of the, the burnout uh, and overwhelm that pastors and ministry workers are experiencing. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting to think about just the channels that people can, you know, communicate uh, with the pastoral now and how limited it was, as you said, you know, the phone and the mailbox, that was that was it as you began pastoral ministry and how that's that's multiplied. And you forgot to mention one, podcast interviews. Um, you, you, could have, you could have added that one. Uh, to that that yeah. channel as well, but you know, even as I was going to ask this question, my mind was thinking, you know, technology, smartphones, social media. You know, you referenced deep work, and I read Cal Newport's book, Deep mm. Work, and then I'm reading his newest book, uh, Digital Minimalism. Yeah, so am and, I. Yeah, and, and I know there's a section in there where he talks about, you know, as he was speaking with a lot of people and them just sharing their challenges uh, to have deep work because of you know, all of the constant tweets, texts, everything. Mm. He said, um, you know, a common term I heard in these conversations about modern digital life was exhaustion. Mm. And, and so him just talking about that word exhaustion, so much of this digital life where we're living in is creating exhaustion. And I know you, you get into that a little bit in, in Reset. I think it's you know, page 91 and following. You kind of set up some mm. some boundaries. And so what, what are some of your thoughts on that? I know you touched on this a little bit, just some thoughts and counsel on this, you know, digital frontier that we're living on. Yeah, the, the verse that, really controls my approach to this is Psalm 46, I think it's verse 10, be still and know that I am God. I, I cannot honestly see any way for us to know God apart from stillness in our lives. And the greatest disturber of that stillness is technology. Now, I love technology. <laughs> I really do. I've always loved it. So, you know, obviously, particular temptation for me. Uh, but, yeah, I was reading uh, Digital Minimalism when I was away last week in spring break. I read also How to Break Up with Your Smartphone. <laughs> and what's interesting is neither of these are spiritual books, Christian books, but it's the world that's recognizing, look, just for my mental sanity and for mm -hmm. my productivity, I need to do this. 
And we have a much greater motive. It's to know God. And so much knowledge of God is being missed and lost because we're missing and losing stillness. So, yeah, I've tried many things um, to uh, win this battle and I win it for some time and then, you know, I slip and I've got to win it again. So I'm just continually, again, with Shona's help, we have some rules that we try and help one another in terms of control of our phones. So no phone, we use, I use a, an alarm clock rather than my phone. So I'm not checking my phone last thing at night, first thing in the morning. Um, I make sure that the phone is not near me and it's off when I'm doing my own devotions. Uh, I When I go to work, I'm at my desk, if I say seven in the morning, I work till about one. That's my sort of deep work period. I make sure my phone is away from me so it's not even tempting me which itself is a mental drain, even if I win that battle. Mm -hmm. Um, Make sure my email is off. And nothing is so urgent, usually, that I'm going to miss something really important. And people know how to get me if something really bad happened. And thus far, nothing really bad has happened. Um, And, you know, my wife knows... um, secretary to contact next door to me at the seminary if she really needs to contact me and she never does so I I think we're um, we have to take these ruthless steps so for example in the evening we put our phones away in the house here so we're not walking around with them all the time when we go on walks together we turn the phones off I just it sounds really luddite in a way Hmm. but it's 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 about sort of spiritual survival and to me, that's not being a Luddite. That's being a Christian. Hmm. And I think we'll, I think future generations will look back on our generation, on our time, and how we've used these great gifts of God and say they were absolutely mad. Like, <laughs> they were crazy. What were they thinking of? And I, I, I really believe that within 10 years, there will be a, a very different culture because I think even, as we said, even the world is recognizing the insanity of this. Uh, you know, I was, I was in Florida last week. We are in a mall and <laughs> the girls and I were just laughing our heads off at just these um, groups of young people walking through the malls, all of them, you know, four, five, six abreast, all of them on their phones looking down as they walked. Uh, it's just like, it's this, like a scene from... You know, some dystopian sci-fi movie, <laughs> uh, and we call this life. <laughs> so I, th- I think I'm hopeful that uh, even in common grace that saints will prevail and will really, if not get help from some of the technology companies, and some of them are even looking at it, that that good writers, not just Christians, but non-Christians will will help us get these tools in their right place, so that they become tools and not masters. No, I think you're you're right. First off, to to acknowledge that these are good gifts that we as as Christians cannot be anti-technology. We're we're pro technology and advancing mm. as a species. Um, but but two, as we're seeing, you know, as you talked about common grace, we're seeing the culture start to highlight some of these issues and these concerns. And I think it is only a matter of time before you know much of the culture kind of wakes up to to these negatives and starts to to take some steps to guard against this um, because you're right it it does impact us spiritually um, eventually you know as we're um, yeah engaging these devices so I think that's some some good counsel um, well, well look I know we're going to start wrapping this up uh, fairly soon and I know I mentioned the companion book Refresh uh, that you wrote with Shona. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about this book? You know, why did you think it was important to, to co-write a companion piece with your, your wife um, this sure. to complement this book? Yeah. So I was when I was writing Reset, I was sending chapters to one of my friends who is a, an editor agent. And she was saying, David, women need this too, you know. And I said, well, yeah, I know, but this is for men. She said, well, you need to get one for women. And so I talked to Shona, my wife, about it. She's never written anything before, but she passed through uh, an experience of depression Mm. in early 2000s, uh, around about the time of the 
um, birth of our fourth child. Um, it was really bad. It wasn't just a passing thing. It was really bad. And yeah, it was a big learning time. That's maybe another conversation. But um, basically chatted with and I said, hey, you know, you've learned so much over the years as a result of this experience, partly caused by a lot of stress and strain, but other factors too. And, you know, maybe the Lord could use your story as he's used mine and that you could write a book that would be, you know, particularly for women, because although there's overlap between the male and female experience of burnout, anxiety, depression, overwhelm, there there are sufficient differences that you can't really write a book, one book that deals with both without, you know, continually swapping, you know, this for women, this for men. So, Shona wrote that one from a more female perspective. It, it maps with the other books, so kind of same chapter headings and um, some overlapping content, but on the whole, very much written from a woman's perspective, much more story, much less bullet points, which is the male thing, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and, and just addressing some of the particular female causes, some of the particular female solutions, and you know, what we've heard from people is, men and women, husbands and wives have found it very helpful just to work through both books together and then maybe swap over so the man can learn about his wife a bit more and the wife learn about her husband a bit more and just together, again, just addressing the, the holistic aspect of the, the male and the female but also the male and the female together. Mm. Yeah, both very helpful resources. Um, but before we close out, uh, what are the top three books that have impacted you the most? I mean, besides the Bible, this is a question that we've asked a lot of people who have uh, come on the podcast. Those top three books, if you, if top you three had to books. Just, Yeah. And then what, what are you currently reading as well? Okay. Top three books. I would say, number one, The Pleasures of God by John Piper. It was a very, um, really pivotal time in my life when I was in the midst of a long church controversy that had really worn me down and made me very negative. And this book just brought back the joy of the gospel and the joy of God in me and in his people. And just, it's never, it's never left me. I just keep re reading that and love these themes. So yeah, the, the pleasures of God, um, a biography had a big impact on me early in my life. Um, Diary and Letters of Andrew Boner, Scottish pastor from the 1800s, 1700s. Uh, just a very spiritual book, um, beautifully focused on, on the prayer life of a pastor and the spirituality of the pastor's role. That was very influential in my view of ministry and how I wanted to be as a, as a pastor. And then probably a more doctrinal book, uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied by John Murray. It's a small book, but just beautifully um, focused on the, the work of Christ, the person of Christ, and just really helped me actually understand what had happened to me in my conversion. It was a, a very interpretive book to me okay, this is who Jesus is, this is what Jesus has done, and this is what explains this mysterious um, salvation that I had, I had experienced. So it was a very helpful book in just clarifying what God had done in my life. Very good. And what, uh, what are some things you're currently reading? Yeah, working on a project on apologetics at the moment, so I've been I've been reading quite a lot on that subject. A really good book on cultural apologetics by Paul Gold, G O U L D. It's just a tremendous book. Um, been reading quite a lot on teen anxiety because uh, I'm, I'm writing something on that for Crossway at the moment, and um, yeah, read Digital Minimalism by Carl Newport. I'm reading that. And the other book I'm reading at the moment is Tim Keller on prayer, which I found just very edifying and, and challenging too. Mm. Yeah, that's an excellent one for sure. Um, well, well, can you share a little bit about those writing projects that you're working on or is that secret? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, working on this book on teen anxiety, which is uh, for Crossway, 
due to finish that up in June and probably be published next year just to try and be a very practical gospel-centered book for this epidemic of anxiety amongst teens some of which I think is caused by the the technology we've talked about as well but many other cultural factors as well and yeah I'm just writing something on Matthew Henry's apologetics uh, which um, has been a bit of a long-term project but hopefully coming to a conclusion soon Hmm, excellent well just a reminder the book is reset and the companion book is refresh and those are both available through crossway books so i'd encourage people to check those out Um, dr murray thank you so much for taking time out uh, to come on the podcast oh glad to do it john thanks so much enjoyed it very much thank you have a good day you too come and buy without money oh come without pay